Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, as the kids head back to school, what about the grandparents? Do they have to stay away from the kids once school starts? The Wee Charity scandal is ripening on the vine as the Kielberger brothers step down and close the Canadian operation. What does this mean for our Prime Minister? And Donald Trump was interviewed by Bob Woodward for his new book and admitted that the COVID-19 pandemic is a lot more severe than he's letting on. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Today is my last day of March break. I'm in school for orientation Friday. I'm not ready. I need more rest. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! Needs more rest. Been hibernating since March. Oh, man. Uh, good afternoon. It is 12-11. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers can back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air, as he has been doing for 26 weeks. Feel free to jump into the conversation. There's lots of ways to do that. You can send us a note via the website, scottthompson at 900chml.com, where you will find the latest commentary, also on Facebook and Twitter. All right, kids returning to school this week, uh, usually for orientation around us here and there, uh, today and tomorrow. And then eventually back to uh, regular or what could be, I guess, regular a situation in a, in a post-COVID-19 or in a COVID-19 world. But, you know, there's an interesting aspect brought up. And uh, actually, it was Larry DeAnne, former mayor of Hamilton, that uh, had said this to me, that over the long weekend, the Labor Day long weekend, they were having all the grandkids over for one last barbecue because once they all get back to school, uh, with, you know, grandparents and such, you don't necessarily want to be around the kids when they have uh, jumped back into that environment. Uh, is that uh, something that we should all be considering with kids returning to school and their bubble about to a balloon inside of a classroom? Uh, do we have to take extra precautions to keep the grandparents safe? Uh, what do we do once we get into school? To talk more about all of this, uh, Barry Packus is with us, uh, Program Director and Assistant Professor at the Dalalana School of Public Health, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Barry, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi, thanks for having me. Boy, Barry, it seems that we've talked about all different angles uh, as far as getting back to school in the last several weeks and such. Uh, grandparents, just another angle with this. Is is there any advice for parents or students or, or whatever in regard to uh, grandparents as we head back to school? Should we be cautious here? Um, certainly. You know, if the question is, should we be cautious? The answer is a definite yes. How we do that is going to really vary based on a whole host of factors in each individual family in, in, with respect to the number of siblings, how those grandparents interact. You know, if we're, if we're talking about grandparents who are still working versus grandparents who are at home versus grandparents who are really necessary for getting kids to and from school. There, there are a lot of factors to consider, and I think this is going to be one of the most difficult things um, in the return to school process now in the fall. And it's not just going to be a case of, okay, the kids are back to school, so we have to back off from the grandparents for a while. Because as you said, sometimes there's situations there where they're involved in child care. Uh, obviously, different scenarios for all families and grandparents. Some may be working, some may be not. But also, uh, you know, we've heard uh, greater chatter of uh, how important that relationship is and how we have to keep that open between the kids and the grandparents. Absolutely. And I think the, I mean, relationships is really what, what this stage of the pandemic is all about. Um, we all know and accept now that we're in this for truly for the long haul and maintaining people's mental health. Uh, is critically important, and a lot of that has to do with relationships. So um, I think everyone is going to have to rethink um, how grandparents are going to be part of their lives right now when kids go back to school and being more cautious. Now, for some people, that's going to mean um, you know not seeing your grandparents at all, potentially, all the way to, for some people, that's going to mean you know, grandparents, there's no choice but to have grandparents drive a carpool, but they're going to have to be masked, they're going to have to be distanced, 
um, you know, visits are going to have to be outside and there's going to be other things that they're going to have to do to sort of make sure that the most vulnerable are not going to be affected. So it, it is going to be different for every family. And that's one of the really challenging things here is in public health, um, we're really trying to provide guidance to help families make decisions. And, and sometimes that guidance can be really you know, cut and dry. This is what you need to do. Um, these are the things you need to think about. And other times, which, you know, right now where it's not only about school, it's about workplaces have reopened, it's about school restarting. And it's also about looking at the numbers and we're slightly, you know, ticking a little bit uh, upward. So it's all those things at once that actually is going to make some of this decision making for families really complicated. Um, and I'm, I'm a medical officer of health. So uh, and I'm a you know public health physician, been at this for a long time, and I have five children and and two parents and two in-laws that are involved here, and and even for myself, who you know I'm involved in this all the time. You, there's a lot of back and forth and thinking about how to work this out. Uh, many uh, are talking about a second wave, um, and and many have also expressed that a second wave will look different than the first, and our reaction to the second wave will be different. Uh, than the first. Can we say the same thing about relationships? Because again, there were, remember there were people that were uh, stuck in long-term care homes. We, we couldn't get in to see them. Uh, and, and again, even space between the grandparents and the family just to keep their own safety in that initial phase where we really didn't know what we're doing with. Is the second time that we're doing this, and now that we're, what, 26 weeks into it, we have a different interpretation of what this all means? Well, I think we have a different understanding of the things we need to do. And as, as public health physicians, uh, I know as, as a group of us, we, we, you know, we discuss this sort of thing. Um, one of the things we've seen is that, you know, there's this real difference between controlled environments and uncontrolled environments. So you have, you know, workplaces where there's all these measures in place. You have long-term care facilities where they've got experience with these, with these measures. You've got schools now that while they're just returning to school, um, you know, we've been planning for this for quite some time. So those are the controlled environments. And then you have the uncontrolled environments like parties, uh, you know, weddings, funerals, um, you know, other kinds of gatherings. And that's where a lot of us are seeing the, the COVID cases and the transmission. And so um, what I think people can focus on now is, and at least, you know, as well, to, to be a little bit more comfortable in the day activity, saying, you know, if, if you're doing the distancing, if you're doing the masking, um, if you're interacting in appropriate ways in your daily life, in your workplace, when you go out to retail and other places, those structured environments are places where I think people can, as long as you're, you're doing those important public health measures, you can feel reasonably confident going around your day in, in you know, as the second wave uh, you know, sh- should we be faced with that progresses. Um, and some of the things we're going to have to probably dial back on are those unstructured uh, things, which, which I think most of us know, but we need to really keep emphasizing that those other unstructured interactions either need to just, you know, simply not happen, as the Premier uh, has said over some news conferences this week, or happen in really different ways, outdoors, masks, um, distance, and, and only when those things can be met should, should any of those even small gatherings happen. So I think that's what we're going to see in the second wave. I think it's going to be, uh, hopefully, we're going, to, we're going to do a reasonable job of, of making sure it's, it's what, what uh, Dr. Davila called uh, a slow burn rather than a big, huge wave. Because one of the most important things is, is keeping mortality down. Of course, people's lives is, is what this is all about. And as long as we can keep the numbers at a reasonable rate and we can keep our hospitals uh, well within capacity, um, I think we'll, we'll be one of the jurisdictions that uh, uh, potentially can manage this better. In a, in a sense, uh, Barry, this is almost like the beginning of this pandemic all over again, because, you know, we, we've sort of gone up the, the curve, then come down the curve. Summer is over. Uh, summer, uh, sorry, progressed. We eventually got back out. Now we're sort of getting into an environment with back to school, back to university and such where uh, it's a sensitive time. So uh, as, as much as it's back to school, it's a reminder, we got to stay on the protocol. We got to get back to the protocol because we're heading into a sensitive time. Absolutely. And, and I think really one of, the, one of the comforting things is I think we really understand that in Ontario, um, whether it's in big cities or in other areas, in some parts of the world, certainly, and, and of course our neighbors to the south are the best example, people are just fed up. They are uh, angry. And, and, and as a result, you're seeing the transmission rates that, that you're seeing there. I think in Canada here, we've, 
um, you know, we, we have trust in, in the people managing this and whether this is our politicians or the public health officers or others. And I think we've become a little bit more comfortable. And I think um, in this in this um, fall where we're you know, potentially going to have to dial back some things. I think it's just going to be um, uh, a little bit more comfortable in a new normal, not not nearly as jarring as it was right back at the beginning. Yeah, very true. At least now, I guess we're somewhat used to it, if we can say that, although I even feel apprehensive in saying that. So what advice do you have for grandparents out there and the families that are, are going to have to make these decisions? So I think that the the basics remain the same, and that that again is is part of the the comfort and the new normal here is that you know the the things we know work continue to work. So you know whereas you might have had been able to have your grandparent really part of your bubble and felt that that bubble is closed and everything is safe within it, I think now that kids are back at school, we have to recognize that it's standing to the point where for most people um, you can still see your grandparents. I think. Um, but you're going to have to do that, you know, at a distance, masked, potentially outside and in different ways. And again, that's going to be different for different people. But but the key really is mask and distance um, for most people. Now, some people are going to be exceptionally anxious and not be able to deal with, you know, being even in close proximity. But I think for many people, um, as long as you maintain those uh, you know, in addition to masks and, and distance, the hand hygiene, I think if people can get back to those things for people who were previously in their bubble, who aren't, you know, were potentially vulnerable, um, that's the first step right now. We, we may need to do other things as we see school restarting. And if, if, if um, you know, if there are a lot of siblings in a particular family or you have a school that you may have had a case in a particular classroom, then obviously things are going to change. And if the, the numbers go up in the population, I think the advice from public health authorities is going to change about this. But for the time being, you know, given that it's starting now, I think the masks, the distancing and the hygiene um, are going to be key. I, I think it's really important from a mental health perspective as well, not to link, especially for younger kids, not to link going back to school with not being able to see their grandparents again. I yeah. think doing it in a really measured way, in a, in a gradual way, uh, and, and frankly, most kids are used to seeing people with masks around also. And I think that's one of the things that's really profoundly different than earlier in the pandemic. Um, and I think most kids are really resilient and are, are going to be okay with it. And, and, uh, and I think most families are going to... Are you confident as we do head back to school, Barry? Are you uh, are you concerned? Where, what are your thoughts? As you know, we've seen lots of of, of anxiousness as we've head up uh, to this day or to this week, and various situations in, in various provinces and such. Uh, are, are you confident where we are now? Uh, I would say, like anyone who is involved in managing elements of the pandemic, and really anyone as who's a member of the public. Um, you know, I'm obviously concerned. Uh, you know, I'm just concerned overall with the general trajectory globally. But I think I am very reassured about the way things are progressing in Ontario for the most part. Um, the school plans, uh, I think, are, are sound. It took a little while to get there. And, and, and kudos to everybody in the public health world and really to the, to the teachers and heads of school who are really scrambling with this. But I think what we've got is a reasonable plan flexible. And, and I think it, it strikes a good balance between um, getting kids back to school, protecting them, and, and, you know, all the other measures in society being um, where we can actually move forward. You know, as, as the Premier did note that we're going to be stopping the reopening process uh, this week, and I think that was a really good um, thing, uh, uh, important and wise thing to do. And we'll see how things go. So I, I am reasonably confident that uh, plan in place and and i think that confidence you know is is can be seen in the fact that i'm sending my kids to school i think most parents are sending their kids to school uh and there's no question that everybody is concerned for their own children for i think very packed comfort okay barry packers has been with us uh program director and assistant professor at the dalla school of public health university of toronto barry thank you so much for the time much appreciated be well good luck with all this have a good day be well 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Starts on the website. You will find the podcast, or sorry, no, the written edition of the commentary there today. Feel free to weigh in on that. Uh, Justin Trudeau needs to answer more questions on the We Charity scandal. Uh, You remember that all of that came to a grinding halt when uh, the Prime Minister conveniently prorogued government to stop uh, the We Scandal investigation, or sorry, committees from moving forward. Uh, The Ethics uh, Commissioner still moving forward with uh, uh, their investigation into the Prime Minister and the Finance Minister on all of this, but the committees came to a grinding halt. Now, of course, even more questions as uh, the We Charity has wound down its operations in Canada, still, uh, I guess, running with an endowment. Not sure how that's going to work. Um, but but certainly the brothers have uh, stepped down uh, as a result of all of this. Uh, in an interview with CTV News, uh, they almost looked as if they were playing the victim card here and said that they were naive, and that, that's how they got into the problems uh, that they did get into. Now that uh, this has been shuttered in Canada, where does that leave all of these committees? Let's bring in Duff Conagher, co-founder of Democracy Watch, adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa, and with us now. Duff, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, hope you are as well. I'm sure you saw the same interview uh, on CTV uh, with uh, the Kielberger brothers in regard to the shuttering of their Canadian operations. It seemed almost as if they were victims in this. Yes, they keep using the word naive um, as if they, uh, well, it's hard to believe that they're co-founders of a nonprofit and so unaware of the obligations of nonprofits in every way, including registering lobbying and what you're allowed to do in terms of giving gifts to sitting politicians, things like that. I mean, these kind of scandals have been in the news now for the whole existence of We Charity, and they seem to be totally unaware of them. And, uh, yeah, it's it's kind of smells of fleeing the jurisdiction by shutting down your Canadian operations and smacks of saying, you know, we're going to shut down and take the ball home because you're not allowing us to play the game the way we want to play the game which was an unethical way of playing the game. So that's what it smacks of, and uh, and I think just a bit more arrogance from them as opposed to taking responsibility for their own actions that got them you know, in this you, trouble. It's interesting, you, uh, Duff, you bring up the word arrogance, because, again, it sort of echoes that feeling in and around the prime minister's office that, you know, uh, the big loss here is for Canada because we're taking our, our ball and going elsewhere. Uh, where does all of this leave the We Charity? Because, again, initially it was like, well, they're out and this is shutting down, but now we're hearing there's an endowment uh, that will be kept and that will run things outside of the country. So where does this leave we? Well, what they're going to do is uh, they're going to sell off the tens of millions of dollars of real estate they own in downtown Toronto and create an endowed foundation that will then run uh, still the overseas operations of, and activities that they've, the various projects and schools and things that they've set up. And they say that, that Craig and, and Mark Kielberger, the co-founders, will leave the organization, but it's really a conglomerate of organizations. So it kind of leaves the question of which organization they're leaving and whether they might still be involved with the endowed foundation or some other way with the travel service they still had running. Um, it, it, there, are, there is that question. And then in terms of investigations, well, hopefully the Auditor General, Procurement Ombudsman, Ethics Commissioner, Lobbying Commissioner, and RCMP will continue their investigations just because you shut down an organization doesn't mean that the people who did actions that may have been illegal in the organization can't still be investigated and found guilty of uh, any actions that cross the line. So the lobbying commissioner we were called on to investigate, and the RCMP commissioner for the unregistered lobbying of We Charity that was done in secret until it was disclosed recently, and then uh, there's the ethics commissioner investigation. Uh, an Auditor General and Procurement Ombudsman into all of the spending and sole source funding that the federal government has given to We Charity over the past several years. Uh, they sort of created the illusion that they are out, uh, even when asked, uh, uh, you know, what they plan to do after this, because they're obviously relatively young guys still. Um, you know, what happens next? The one said that he was, you know, going to go home and, and, and raise the kids. I mean, are we just to assume now that the brothers are out of work? We'll see. 
I mean, it is a question for the people that donated to the part of the organization that bought the real estate and that was supposed to set up a kind of wee charity, charity campus down by their headquarters in downtown east side of Toronto. And um, so are they getting some huge severance so that they never have to work again? That's a big question for the people who have donated to the organizations. They have a right to have their money go to where they donated it. And it's a private organization, the, the part of the conglomerate that owns the real estate. And so we don't know how much money it's made or it doesn't have to report anything publicly. But people have donated to it. We know that. Someone donated millions so they could buy one of the buildings to set up their headquarters. And I'm guessing the other donors will be wondering, well, wait a second, we donated to one cause and activities, and now you're saying you're shutting those down, or are you, or what are you doing? So uh, donors have a right to have their money to go to the, the activities they donated to. So that's another big question to be watched closely. Uh, as you mentioned, they said during this interview that they were naive, that they uh, this was a victim. Uh, they were a victim of politics, that they were a victim of, of COVID-19. Uh, but then asked who was to blame. They said no one is to blame. Does that mean that they were to blame? I mean, someone, you know, like all the other charities aren't going under because of COVID-19. I mean, we certainly certainly do know that there are challenges for charities during this time, like there's challenges for every industry. Uh, we don't see the other ones folding. What's different here? No one is to blame. What can I say? It's, it's just more of the same from these guys. Um, yes, people are to blame. People do things, and they're either right or wrong, and good or bad. And so the people who did bad things will hopefully be held accountable by the watchdogs. Hopefully they won't roll over like lapdogs, you know, like the lobbying commissioner has several times on Trudeau uh, situations. Where we have four court cases filed against the uh, current federal lobbying commissioner who was handpicked by Trudeau. And has let off a lot of lobbyists who raised money for the Liberal Party at events that Trudeau was at and things like that that are violations of the rules. Hopefully that commissioner won't roll over just because We Charity is Liberal Connected. Hopefully the Ethics Commission won't roll over as that commissioner has several times in the past too and Democracy Watch has a court case against the Ethics Commissioner currently for rolling over on the SNC-Lavalin situation and letting eight public office holders who violated the rules off the hook. And the Auditor General Procurement Ombudsman, the RCMP, I mean, hopefully these watchdogs do their job and cont continue pursuing the people who are to blame because of things that they did. So uh, I'm, I, we continue to hear statements like this from Mark and Craig Kielberger. And there's statements that are very political in terms of politicians do these kind of statements a lot, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. What has happened, it was not something that possibly should have occurred. Well, there's no person in that sentence right? yeah, yeah. that takes responsibility for actions or decisions. And, and it's totally unacceptable. Uh, it, where would the Prime Minister... Age, people where do would things, the, and they're right yeah. or wrong, and you mm -hmm. take responsibility when you do wrong. That's the only thing that Trudeau did properly in this situation was very early on, compared to past unethical situations... He said, I shouldn't have been there at the table. I did wrong. Right. But that doesn't mean he's off the hook. He's still found guilty. And to say something like no one's to blame, that's just a ridiculously bad and irresponsible statement. Duff Conacher has been with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch, adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa. Duff, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Uh, let's bring in Michael Barrett, Shadow Minister for Ethics for the Conservative Party of Canada, and is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, thanks for having me on. What were your thoughts on uh, the interview that uh, we've all seen now uh, of the Kilberger brothers? Uh, it, it seems as if almost they were playing the victim here, that uh, they've been victimized, that uh, they were naive in this uh, political uh, fallout, the political game. What are your thoughts on, on that interview? Uh, look, this uh, decision to, to shut down their, their Canadian operation it doesn't change anything from the perspective of the official opposition. Uh, 
the committees will continue their investigations once Parliament uh, reopens. And the WE organization must release all of the documents that the Finance Committee requested and that they committed and that their agents committed to releasing during their appearances. So uh, it this is kind of like a, uh, you know, during litigation, a company declaring bankruptcy and thinking they've absolved themselves of all of their responsibilities. Responsibilities continue. And, um, you know, I, I think that this demonstrates uh, even, you know, it's, it's further proof that the government did not do their due diligence. Cabinet did not do their due diligence uh, when they, they approved handing over anywhere between half and uh, $1 billion uh, to this organization. Uh, are you concerned that now that this can, uh, the Canadian operations are shuttered, that we won't get all the answers? Well, you know, the, the power of uh, parliamentary committees is, uh, is absolute. Um, the uh, gentleman made a, they, they made an undertaking while under oath that they would provide documents, and they were given notice, a reminder of that by myself and my colleague Pierre Polyev on August 30th. We furnished them with a list of their uh, of the documents that we requested to that date, and that was prepared by the Library of Parliament. So, um, you know, uh, a, a failure to comply or the destruction of those documents um, would cause further complications uh, for for them. But you know, ultimately, the the opposition is going to the opposition parties are are going to get the truth for Canadians, in spite of prorogation, in spite of. Um, you know, one of the uh, shells of the WE organization getting moved uh, to another spot. Um, we're we're going to get answers. Uh, the, the brothers said that they were naive in all of this, that they were a victim of politics and COVID-19, and that no one is to blame. Do you buy that? Well, from the perspective of, uh, as, a, as a parliamentarian, I think that Cabinet is responsible for the failure of the CSSG, this program. That, that lies at the feet of, uh, of Justin Trudeau and his government. And, and with respect to the, uh, the, the Kielbergers, I, I would argue that perhaps they're quite the opposite. I, I think that they were very skilled or well-advised as operators in the political sphere, lobbying uh, or, or and reaching out to multiple ministries, including, um, you know, the prime minister's office, the uh, finance minister's office, the small business minister, the, uh, you know, um, the uh, uh, minister Chagger's uh, office and had conversations with uh, ministers directly. And um, they wanted to engage in a program and ultimately they designed a program that only they could deliver. And so they were awarded the contract uh and and so it seems to me like they were able to do what many companies pay uh consultants to attempt to to get even close to where they are this was this was a, a half a billion dollar contract i don't think that uh naivete um is is in play when you're able to land that in uh, in a couple weeks time uh with government i i think that um i think it's disingenuous to say that uh, that they didn't know what they were doing do you think this interview help, uh, helped or hurt uh, the brother's image and that of the prime minister's office? Are there now more questions than there were before this announcement? Uh, there, there, are, um, there are a lot of unanswered questions. And um, I think that, uh, that you know, the fact the prime minister was unwilling to provide you know, a statement uh, yesterday, uh, just, just a few months ago, you know, they, the contention was from from Prime Minister Trudeau and his ministers, from his government, was that this was the only organization in the country that could deliver a massive, a massive program that would have had 100,000 uh, people uh, under under its umbrella. And the group, uh, the, the WE organization, folded up like an umbrella before this program would have even been through to completion. So it's, hmm. um, it's, in, it's incredible, the lack of due diligence that was that was exercised here and uh, no comment uh from the prime minister's shop is uh it's it's frankly unacceptable is this resonating with canadians does the fact that this they've closed down their canadian operations does that change their position or if you felt one way you feel that way if you felt the different uh, a different way you still feel that way well, i don't think anyone likes to see when you know when someone has to uh close up their um, their endeavor, you know, the, these uh, 
these guys have been working on uh, on projects for 25 years. People, lots of lots of folks have gone to their events. Um, so I'm I'm sure that uh, people would have um, you know some some mixed emotions about that. But what but what I've heard consistently is that this has been an unmitigated disaster. The CSSG and the appearance by the Kielbergers at committee. Um, they were not um, forthright in their answers. There are contradictions between the testimony of government officials and the Kielbergers. And so we're, you know, Canadians, Canadians have legitimate questions. And when you're talking about an organization that paid members of the prime minister's family half a million dollars, and then uh, the prime minister's government uh, has them handing out half a billion dollars, uh, that is um, very very serious and requires very close scrutiny and proroguing parliament shutting down companies this is not going to stop uh the questions are you surprised we haven't heard from the prime minister on this yet well i i it's certainly um disappointing i think it's unsurprising though that he doesn't want to uh he doesn't want to talk about this that's why he prorogued parliament after all there was no reason why uh if the purpose was to introduce a throne speech on the 23rd of september Parliament couldn't have been prorogued on the 22nd of September. He deliberately uh, uh, shut down committees. He did not want to talk about this uh, this mess, his scandal, any further. Um, he's under investigation by the ethics commissioner, uh, having twice been found guilty of breaking ethics laws already. So him not wanting to talk about it is is unsurprising. But like I said, it, it's it's disappointing when we have uh, a matter like this that is of the public interest and and is. Um, you know, uh, people people certainly do want more answers, and it's uh, you know we're here talking about it today, and uh, and I'm sure your listeners will have questions going forward. How do you think the prime minister will react? I mean, sooner or later he's going to have to comment on this. What do you think his position will be? What are you expecting as an opposition? Uh, well, my my expectation is that we would have uh, transparency and accountability from the prime minister. Um, that's that's the the minimum that Canadians deserve. What I think he will do is say that it has, you know, this this organization closing up shop has, has, you know, not really nothing to do with them. And uh, they were just the government was just trying to uh, help out students. But what we've seen a pattern of with with the government is that they look to help out uh, their friends first uh, and Canadians have to pick up the tab. And in this case, um, they helped no students. And there were costs and there's a tremendous amount of resources that have been devoted now to trying to get answers in this latest uh, liberal corruption scandal. Do you think this will alter the throne speech in any way? It it would be um, I think it would be in the government's best interest in a minority parliament to engage in extensive consultations with opposition parties. Um, You know, we we, the opposition uh, holds a majority. And we are now 13 days from the speech from the throne. And um, by all accounts that I've heard, uh, no opposition parties have been formally consulted or requested for input on on the speech from the throne. So it's really anyone's guess uh, what is going to be in there. Um, Distract and surprise is is probably uh, the the method that Justin Trudeau will, will undertake so that as committees start back up and as we formally start to look into this scandal further, that um, there are, you know, uh, uh, you know, some some shiny objects, some very expensive shiny objects that he'd like to distract Canadians with. But um, we'll be able to do both. We'll be able to closely examine uh, the merits uh, for the Canadian for Canadians and for the Canadian economy and in the speech from the throne, but also to hold them to account um, for uh, for this uh, CSSG half a billion dollar boondoggle. Uh, last question. Uh, could people see this coming? I mean, once this contract was denied and the whole thing kind of broke, was it just a, inevitable that, that we would collapse? Many were saying it was on shaky ground prior to this. Well, what we heard from the uh, former chair of the board was that, you know, she was asking for a look at the financials and they uh, and that the, the Kielbergers refused and they refute this and, and they did so in their interview last night. But we heard that they were in financial trouble, and and the contention has been made that there was this was an attempt uh, by uh, the Trudeau Liberals to bail out the the We organization, and they've said that they were in fine shape and that they were uh, that that they were doing very well. But they laid off hundreds of employees at the start of the pandemic. 
and uh, and now here we are uh, a few months a few few weeks later and um they're ceasing operations and 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 selling off their assets to pay their creditors this um is is very troubling and so from what we had heard and what we had asked them this is consistent with that but they denied then the Kilbergers denied then and they deny now that um they were they were in any kind of trouble and so i think that uh, canadians can judge for themselves uh what's actually the case Michael Barrett has been with us, Shadow Minister for Ethics, Conservative Party of Canada. Michael, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Yep, you too. Take care. It is 127 News on the Way. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's head south of the border. And uh, Bob Woodward, who, uh, you know, Woodward and Bernstein, uh, two very, very famous uh, reporters who back in the day, I believe it was with the Washington Post, um, pretty much brought down uh, President Nixon and the whole Watergate scandal at the time. Uh, since then, Woodward has done many, many books on uh, various presidents, probably tries to hit everyone since then, and uh, sat down with President Donald Trump uh, over a series of interviews dating back to about the time that the uh, COVID-19 pandemic started, February, March, April, and such. And, uh, and, and he is now, uh, releasing excerpts from tapes that he has from, uh, those interviews, uh, as his new book is uh, about to come out, Rage. And in that, uh, he has, Bob Woodward has recordings of the president basically saying the opposite to what he's telling everybody else and how severe this, uh, this virus is, how it is worse than the flu. He would say the opposite in front of people and such. Here's a quick clip of uh, the president. I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down. Yes, sir. Because I don't want to create a panic. To talk more about all of this, Michael Trogott is with us, Professor Emeritus of Communication Studies and Political Science uh, at the University of Michigan. Michael, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, I'm doing fine, Scott. Thank you. All right, uh, Michael, your thoughts on the revelations uh, that are coming out or will be coming out in Bob Woodward's book and and these tape recordings that contradict uh, most of what Donald Trump said in public. What are your thoughts with all of this? Well, I think especially with regard to the pandemic, this is a fundamental dereliction of duty as president of the United States. Uh, his uh, job, his you know primary task is to protect the health and safety of the American people. And uh, um, he engaged in a set of activities that uh, Michelle Goldberg in the New York Times this morning called conscious deception. He, he, he understood what the uh, severity of the pandemic could become and uh, he chose not to either prepare or protect the American people from it. What about his point that he did not want to create panic? Uh, is anybody buying that? Is his, would his base buy that? <clears throat> well, I'm sure that there will, people, there will be people in his base who will buy that. Uh, but <clears throat> um, creating panic, uh, could have been the product of, uh, you know, sort of loose talk, uh, un, unsupported by science. But an alternative would have been to talk straightforwardly and with some uh, empathy and the support of the scientists that he had around him about the dangers and what people could do to protect themselves. One of the most uh, Serious things I think he did was refuse to wear a mask when uh, one of the three basic uh, elements of a anti-coronavirus uh, campaign would have been mask wearing as well as social distancing. He ignored that in organizing these large rallies as well. Um, and of course, he never organized a national testing program, which was the third leg of the stool. 
Uh, some have said in regard to his statements, uh, Donald Trump's statements, that he didn't want to create panic as a result of all of this. Others have made the comparison, well, what if a tornado was coming or a hurricane was coming or a wildfire was coming? Would you not want to tell everybody, uh, you know, in, in order to get them safely out or safely prepared as opposed to creating pa- uh, panic? Is that a viable argument? I, I think that that's a fair uh, analogy. Um, and in the case of those kinds of uh, natural events, you know, we'd have a lot of tracking, uh, for example, meteorological tracking uh, uh, well in advance, and so preparation and even evacuation would be possible. We we could have done something like that uh, in the United States with, you know, a fair amount of warning, uh, they're probably because of human travel patterns. Uh, there wasn't any way really to avoid uh, some infection and some spread, but it certainly could have been minimized to something far less than almost 200,000 deaths. Uh, obviously, other countries were dealing with the same thing at the same time. Did they create panic? I mean, other than uh, the hoarding of toilet paper the first couple of weeks into this uh, this pandemic, I, you know, I, I don't think there was, you know, there was certainly anxiety, there was certainly fear, but I, I don't think there was panic, was there? And especially with the way other countries handled this. I think that's a good point. Um Obviously, there would be fear and anxiety because it's a it's a, a, a dangerous uh, disease, but uh, it doesn't degenerate into panic, or it didn't degenerate into panic in other countries, and it probably wouldn't have uh, in the United States, you know, with uh, a, appropriate leadership from the White House. Why would Donald Trump? even say something like this to Bob Woodward that was the exact opposite of what he was saying publicly. Why would he do that? Well, um, first of all, we, you know, we can only surmise about why he would. Uh, but um, I think that there are two, two very likely explanations for this. Uh, one of them is his interest in being reelected. And that would be linked to uh, the prospect of having favorable treatment in a book, a second book about him uh, produced by uh, Bob Woodward. That was a serious miscalculation on his part. Uh, But he has demonstrated uh, an, uh, an interest or a willingness to believe that if he talks to somebody or to anybody, he can convince them of his position. And so I think in conjunction with what he thought the book could contribute to his reelection campaign by demonstrating what a good leader he was, he, he decided to engage in these interviews. Uh, again, everybody knows the history of Bob Woodward, uh, Woodward and Bernstein and, and the whole Nixon and Watergate and such. I mean, obviously, both these men are accomplished investigative uh, journalists. Why would anybody in the White House let him take this interview with Bob Woodward? Well, first of all, uh, it, it wasn't a single interview. I think it's important to point out that I think it's like 18, think, isn't it? 18 conversations over yeah. nine hours. And. Uh, it's not clear how closely he consulted with his staff. And, you know, in a, in a White House, uh, I'm sure that this is true in Ottawa as well. When the leader engages in almost any conversation, there are staff around taking notes, uh, creating a record of what was discussed. But many of these conversations took place at Trump's initiative in the evening, where he apparently called from the residence. So he, he, in a sense, deliberately avoided the constraints that uh, his staff members would have placed on him in these conversations. And, of course, since they were recorded, he's now paying a price for this. Is he not, in fact, admitting to Bob Woodward what everybody else sort of suspected on the side? Is this not confirming everything 
that that his uh, his opponents have have suggested? Uh, you mean that he doesn't tell the truth ordinarily? Well, yeah, uh, that he's he downplayed yeah. this and then said something completely different to someone else. I mean, is he not admitting his mistakes? Is he not admitting that he did something wrong here? Well, uh, I'm not sure that he believes that he is admitting that he did something wrong. I think he's describing how he behaved, and he may honestly believe that he had some element of uh, protecting the American public uh, in mind. But m- most arms-length observers would, would say that this was inappropriate behavior and it put Americans at risk. What about the fact that towards even the end of these interviews uh, later on, he was still believing that he should be downplaying this? Well, this is the part I think that's that's uh, uh, related to his reelection att- efforts. Um, uh, he 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 may have understood in a vague kind of way that the uh, onset of the epidemic would be bad for his uh, reelection prospects, but there must have been a point at which he saw polling data that showed that the public was concerned about his handling of the pandemic. And so once he began down this path, I think he, he uh, probably felt he had to stay on it. What about Trump's reaction after this information has gone out? He's now calling it a political hit job. How can it be? It's, it's him. It's him in his own words. Well, it can't be it can't be a hit job be, uh, because he he participated in the interviews, and as we discussed a few moments ago, he actually initiated some of the conversations. He he has a very thin uh, kind of defense, uh, which is about whether the behavior of Woodward was appropriate or not, because he when Woodward had this information late in the spring in the summer. Why didn't he go public with it? Instead, he protected uh, the potential sales of his book by by holding on to this. So, and what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on that? Created a problem. I'm so, what, that's created a problem for Bob Woodward among his peers. So, what's your take on that? How does is that Trump's out of this situation? Um, you know, again, it, it certainly looks like uh, Woodward was doing this just to advance the sales of the book. Did he have an obligation to point this out earlier and say, "Hey, I got the rest in my book coming out in September"? Well, I, I, uh, I, I don't think it absolves Trump of anything, but I think it creates uh, a, a pretty clear ethical dilemma for Bob Woodward and. It will be one, you know, that he'll have to live with and and uh, rebut uh, for quite a long time. I think it's important to remember that, you know, these are brand new stories that came out of yesterday's Washington Post. Bob Woodward doesn't work for the Post anymore, but he obviously has a close relationship with them. And he has an interview coming Sunday uh, on on uh, CBS, but um, this will be a story for two or three weeks uh, going forward into the campaign, and it'll be sustained by what I think would inevitably be a Biden advertising campaign, you know, using the president's voice uh, during the interviews and during right. his public pronouncements uh, in, in, in his ads. So this is not going to go away, and and the president will and his campaign will continually have to deal with this right up until election day, I suspect. So you think that uh, although this does create uh, an ethical dilemma for Bob Woodward uh, because this is on tape and it's it's the recordings of the president, uh, the facts are the facts, uh, whether he held on to those facts longer than he should have or not. Yes, I think uh, uh, I, I'm I'm imagining or imputing an argument that I think that Bob uh, Woodward will make. He doesn't work for a news organization anymore. He's a kind of an independent author. 
Right. And so he is not a, a real or true journalist. He's not a reporter he has a lot anymore. Of skills. Yeah. He's not a reporter anymore. Right. He he he's an author uh, with excellent training as an investigative journalist. <clears throat> so part of this is you know ex post facto justification for his behavior, but he's going to say that he needed to develop a coherent story. Uh, about the president and his behavior. The book, I think, will cover other things, you know, besides the pandemic um, and, the, and, and the government's response to it. And so <clears throat> he'll say that it took him until uh, June or July to finish the interviews, and then he had some writing, and then there was some editing, and they got the book out as fast as they could. If Bob Woodward would have released... Uh, excerpts of these tapes back in March. Um, would that have made a difference? Would it Would it have the impact it has now? I think almost certainly it would have made a difference. It may have even changed the, the, the president's uh, path in some way. Would it have not? Sure, it would have changed the course of history. Because yeah. if you think back to the, to the uh, news coverage, uh, there is this event this july 28th uh, this uh, january 28th briefing of the president about the pandemic which he he denied he read anything about uh but one of the uh revelations i think in the book is that uh this was a personal briefing by o'brien national security uh, uh advisor um which the president uh, understood very clearly. So going back to early February, around the time that these that the disclosure of the January meetings uh, were were being discussed in the press, the president was denying this. So if uh, Woodward had said no, this this was a real event, and in fact, here's what the president said took place. I think obviously would have changed the government's response and therefore the course of history for many Americans. But does that change what this reporting will do to how people feel about Trump? Is that, in other words, will people discredit this because of that issue? Well, we know from the psychological theory of motivated reasoning that people who are Trump supporters are going to discount this and impute, you know, evil motives to Bob Woodward. So it's not likely to change their minds. Um, And it's not going to change the minds of Democrats who, you know, didn't like the president very much to begin with. There will be a small segment of the electorate uh, who may or may not go to the polls uh, but uh, this will tilt them against Trump, and it's likely to increase the popular vote margin of Joe Biden uh, when all the votes are counted. Michael Trocott has been with us, Professor Emeritus of Communication Studies, Political Science, and author on Communications, Public Opinion, and Media Polling with the University of Michigan. Uh, where does this stack up, Michael? Uh, last question. Where does this stand up in all of the other things that, that Trump has done? Is this just uh, water off a duck's back again? Well, I doubt, uh, I doubt that it'll be water off the duck's back. This is the most serious thing that I think that's happened to him, maybe with the exception of the knowledge that we may never get about his uh, relationship with Vladimir Putin and, and, and Russia. But uh, the particularly powerful part of this is that it's the president speaking in his own voice. He can't call fake news. He can't talk about a hit job, even though he's trying to. Um, he did this to himself. Michael Trogott from the University of Michigan. Michael, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. You too, Scott. Good to chat. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.